If we please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. And we'll again be looking at two chapters this week. We're going to be looking at chapters 15 and 16. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 579 and 580. And if you've ever read through the book of Isaiah, you know that this section that we're in now, and it's about 10 chapters long, this section can be extremely tedious. We're in a section where God, through Isaiah, is pronouncing judgment on these nations surrounding God's people, surrounding the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And these chapters mention places, they mention names that we don't recognize. And these chapters will, as we're reading through, start to all run together. It sounds like the, the same thing over and over. Just substitute one nation for another, and it's the same judgment. God is judging these nations. Well, I had a, a seminary professor who said that all Scripture is filled with treasures. And he said if we're willing to dig, if we're willing to dig even these most difficult passages, and maybe even especially these most difficult passages, if we're willing to dig, we can discover some of the richest richest gems. And I think that's what we see in this section of Isaiah. See, on the surface, these chapters all seem to say the same thing, but on closer inspection, we find differences. We find these gems. And my goal is not to give a history lesson. This is a sermon. It's not a, it's not a lecture. But rather, what we're going to do is to give enough of these details so we can recognize, so we can appreciate these gems and then discover what the Lord is teaching us, what he's saying to us today through these gems. And the goal is for us to, to learn from them and to apply them in our lives. The two chapters that we're studying this morning deal with God's judgment on the people of Moab. So Moab was a nation to the east of Judah. And to give you a reference, this is where the, the modern country of Jordan is located. So you know who the Moabites are. And they were descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot. And they were pagans. They worshipped a pagan god named Kamosh. And the Old Testament is filled with many descriptions of hostility between Moab and, and Israel. Moab was basically something like a, a thorn in the side of Israel. But Moab still received God's grace. God gave Moab land, and he told the Israelites, this land is for Moab. You are not to take that land. You are to respect that, that fact. You are not to battle them. And probably the most well-known person from Moab was Ruth, from the biblical book and bearing her name. And Ruth, who though through her faith in the living God, she actually became part of the covenant community. She became the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, King David, and is in the ancestry to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I'm going to read just the first four verses of chapter 15, but we'll be discussing both 15 and 16. So Isaiah 15, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. An oracle concerning Moab. Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Dibon, to the high places to weep. Over Nebo and over Mediba, Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Eliela cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. Let's pray. Lord, we do need your spirit. Lord, we read these words written so many years ago to an ancient people. 
And Lord, it's so difficult for us to see any application to ourselves. But Lord, your word is true. Your word is eternal. Your word speaks to us now. Lord, I need your Holy Spirit. I cannot say anything that is of any use without your Holy Spirit. So I pray that you will anoint my words, that I will faithfully communicate what your word teaches. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will give us clarity, that we will understand what is here in these words. And Lord, I do pray for the, for the power of the Holy Spirit to anoint my words. And Lord, that they will be compelling as we are listening to them. We cannot, we cannot be distracted. Protect us from the distractions. But above all, Father, I pray we will see Christ. We will see Christ and we will be changed. Each one of us in this room will become more like the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. So I want to start just kind of giving a major overview of the themes of these two verses so we know where we're going. Kind of, kind of a big picture. We get the lay of the land of these two chapters, 15 and 16. So here's the 30-second synopsis of these two chapters. Chapter 15 is about judgment. It's about judgment on Moab. And this takes place in, in history at the hands of the Assyrian Empire. And this chapter describes this judgment as brutal and graphic. But then in chapter 16, chapter 16, we see grace. Grace is offered, and we're used to seeing grace offered to Judah, to God's wayward people. But here, grace is offered to the Moabites. Grace is offered to the pagans. They're not God's people. But in chapter 16, we see God offering them grace. And where is this found? Where do they find the grace? It's found in Judah. It's found in God's people. The the Moab refugees are instructed to take shelter in Judah, to take shelter among God's people. And this is their only safety. This is their only hope. And not only instructions given to Moab in this chapter, but in chapter 16, we also see instructions given to Judah themselves. And these instructions are that they are not to reject these outcasts from Moab, but rather they are to shelter them. And this is, again, the only hope for Moab, to seek shelter in Judah, and ultimately to seek shelter in the God of Judah. But sadly, because of their pride, because Moab refuses to to humbly accept this assistance, because they will not take advantage of this place of shelter, they reject the grace given to them. And in turn, they face judgment. And Isaiah predicts this destruction is going to come quickly, actually in less than three years of his writing. So this is the big picture details of these chapters. Now we're going to take a closer look at the details. And we're going to look at, in this passage, in three parts. The first part is chapter 15. This is the judgment. We're going to look at this judgment on Moab and what it really, what it teaches us about God, what it teaches about ourselves. The second part is the grace, the grace that is offered in this place of shelter. What does this grace consist of? How is this grace applied? And third, we're going to look at the reaction to this grace, why they refuse the offer. So let's jump in. First part, part one, judgment. Verse one of chapter 15 says, because R of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. So our and here, these are major cities in Moab, and we don't today know the exact locations of these cities, but some scholars speculate that these cities were actually on opposite ends of this country, of this nation, and that they were simultaneously attacked, and they fell simultaneously. And it says they're laid to waste in a night. What this does is this indicates how quickly these cities fall. 
Other cities here are mentioned. Nebo in verse 2. Heshbon. Eliela in verse 4. Uh, Huluth. Uh, Horianaim in verse 5. And see, these, these are cities we don't recognize. We don't know where they are. But we have seven cities. Seven cities that fall all at the same time. So I'm going to put this in perspective in terms that we can understand. We don't recognize these names. But what if we heard New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Los Angeles, Dallas, Atlanta, all being invaded, all being destroyed in a single night, simultaneously. That's what they were facing. But not only are their cities destroyed, so is their land. See, Moab had some of the most fertile land in the entire region. I mean, it still does, Jordan, today. And it had abundant natural resources. But verse 6 and 7 tell us, the waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brooks of the willows. They have their farmland destroyed. Again, to add to our analogy, in addition to losing those seven major cities, imagine if the heartland of the United States was destroyed, the fertile heartland where we get most of our grain, most of our foods. In addition to that, think of the the coastlands, the coastal waterways where we get our fish. That's all destroyed. No food. And and verse 9 gives a graphic illustration of the carnage. It says, For the waters of Dibon are full of blood. It's really hard for us to imagine this devastation. Again, to put it into perspective, think of the Mississippi River, full of blood. Think of the Gulf of Mexico, red with blood, with human blood. It's really beyond anything we could comprehend. And although human agents are carrying out this carnage, this is the Assyrians, this judgment actually comes from God. Verse 9, the Lord says, I will bring upon Dibon even more. See, God himself God himself is the author of this carnage. The Assyrians are his agents. Now, the Assyrians are wicked. They're not intentionally doing God's will. They're acting according to their own sinful desires. And they themselves will face God's judgment for what they're doing. But nevertheless, the Lord is sovereignly using Assyria as his divine agent of judgment against Moab. And this is is a horrible situation for Moab. And we see the response of the people of Moab in verses 2 and 3. It says, he, the Moabite citizen, has gone up to the temple and to Dibon, to the high places, that's where they worship, to weep over Nebo, over Mediba, Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth, on the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. There is intense weeping, there is intense wailing going on. The people, they shave their heads, they, they shave their beards. This, this indicates that they are mourning. They go up to their temples, they cry out to their false gods to save them. But they have no power. The, the false gods cannot save them. There is no hope in a false religion. And this is a desperate situation. This is what they face. This is what this chapter is saying. And it's very important for us to understand It's very important for us to feel. It's very important for us to visualize this desperation. We don't want to just pass over it too quickly as as we're reading through that. We want to to, to really feel the the absolute terror, the horror that they faced. They faced facing God's judgment, facing God's wrath. We want to feel it. We We want to taste it. We want to be repulsed by it. See, because unless we do, Unless we feel this horror of what they faced, the horror really of what they deserved, 
We really can't appreciate. We can't appreciate what we see next. It won't make any sense to us. And what we see next is hope. What we see next is grace. What we see next is mercy. And we see this hope and grace and mercy described in chapter 16. So take a look at the first two verses in chapter 16. It says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah by way of the desert, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. So this is, a, this is a very poetic section. Let me explain what's going on here. See, the survivors of this attack in Moab, they're hunkered down in, in Selah. This, this means rock. And it could have been a cave. It could have been a, a natural fortress. But it gave them temporary shelter, temporary shelter from the Assyrians coming in. And they're instructed at this point to send the lamb to the Mount of Zion. This is basically send the lamb to the, the kingdom of Judah. Send this lamb to God's people. And this lamb is, is a tribute. It's a, it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of honor to the king of Judah. And it's a request, a request for shelter. Verses 3 and 4 here are addressed directly to God's people. How They're telling Judah how they are to respond to this request. And we read, give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon, shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive lest the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them from a destroyer. So going quickly through these verses, God's people are instructed to give counsel. What's this mean? They're to give counsel about God, about the true God. See, Israel and Judah, these were God's covenant people. These were the only people at the time who knew the true God. As Paul tells us in Romans 3, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. See, the Jews, the people of, of Israel and of Judah, they knew Scripture. They had Scripture. They had the prophets. They had God's law. They had a covenant with God. And even though many of them were unfaithful, this does not nullify the promises of God. God's promises through them, through Abraham, was that God would bless the whole world through the nation of Israel, through Abraham. All the families of the world would be blessed. So Judas also was to grant them justice. See, God is a, a God of justice. And God's people are to make him known to the world. They are to act in accordance with his character so that he may be seen. Also, we see here God is a God of mercy. His people are to model his mercy by themselves showing mercy to the outcasts of, Bo- of, of Moab. And they show this mercy by protecting them. They show this mercy by providing them aid. We see this metaphorically in the words, make their shade like night at the height of noon. And in doing this, God's people are actually modeling the Lord himself. We see the same imagery in Psalm 121, verses 5 and 6, which says, The Lord, Yahweh, is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. So just as the Lord is the protector of God's covenant people, his people now are to model God by being the protector of those who seek refuge in them, those who seek to join them. And they are commanded to shelter the outcasts. And what we see here was actually foreshadowed much earlier in Scripture. We see this shelter on an individual level in the book of Ruth. If you remember the book of Ruth, when when Ruth goes to Boaz at night on the threshing room floor, threshing room floor, 
And she uncovers his feet and she, she lays at his feet. Ruth here is requesting Boaz to shelter her. Ruth is an outcast. She fled from Moab to Judah. And Boaz here represents God's people when he shows mercy, when he shows kindness to her and provides for this outcast. And then Ruth, through her faith in Yahweh and Boaz's protection, she becomes part of God's covenant people. And she becomes the great-grandmother of King David and the ancestor to Jesus, the Messiah. And verse 4 instructs Judah to, to follow, or I'm sorry, Judah to allow the Moabites to sojourn among them, to protect them, to shelter them from the destroyer. And at the end of verse 4, when the destruction has ceased, we are given here another prophecy. We are given an important prophecy. So take a look at, at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. It says, When the oppressor is no more, and destruction has ceased, <clears throat> and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. So this speaks about the end of the immediate threat of the Assyrians. But then in typical Isaiah fashion, we see the timeline shift. This next prophecy is not about that immediate timeline. It is far in the future. In the next prophecy we see in verse 5, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges, judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And here we see another one of the many, many messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah. This prophecy is about the Messiah. This prophecy is about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who will come in the tent of David because he is a descendant of David. And he is the king. He is the king who sits on a throne established in steadfast love. He will judge and seek justice. He will be swift to do righteousness. He alone is the ultimate place of shelter. Not just for Moab, not just for Judah, but for all people, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And here we see the hope in this passage. See, Moab is instructed to seek shelter in Judah because Judah is where they find the Messiah. It is the Messiah. It is in the Messiah. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ who is their hope. He alone is our hope, our ultimate hope. And as we've seen throughout the book of Isaiah and, and really throughout all Scripture, there are many ways to describe the Messiah, many ways to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think the description given here is particularly poignant, particularly poignant. He is described as one who sits in faithfulness in the tent of David. So why is this important? Well, David is particularly relevant because David, in David, we have this connection between Moab and Judah. See, David is both a descendant of Moab through Ruth and a descendant of Judah through Boaz. In effect, Isaiah is saying to the Moabites that by coming to the Jewish Messiah, who is a descendant of David, who is a descendant of Ruth, that they're not worshiping something foreign to themselves, but rather they are coming to their own. They are worshiping their own. The Jewish Messiah is actually the Moabite Messiah. And what's really cool about this is we're getting a glimpse here. We're getting a glimpse of God's eternal plan working out. We're seeing hints of the mystery, a mystery that's not fully revealed until the New Testament. And in our New Testament reading from Ephesians, we read in Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
So Jesus Christ is not just the Jewish Messiah. He's not just the Moabite Messiah. He is the only Messiah. He is the only way to have peace with God. And for all who receive him, all who believe in him, he is our Messiah as well. And many Christians testify, and this has been my personal experience as well, that when we come to faith, Jesus and scripture and theology, they don't seem to be something new. It's like rediscovering something that we always knew. It, it, deep down, it, it, you, we couldn't put our finger upon it, uh, couldn't articulate it, but we always knew it. And when we hear the gospel, when the gospel comes, we say, that's it. That's what I've been searching for. And we have been made for the Lord. And when we're reconciled to him through Jesus Christ, we actually become what we have always meant to be. We come home. And this is when we are most satisfied. This is when we are most happy. This is really when we're the most human because we were made for Christ. But then there's a huge and a tragic barrier here that stands in the way of this homecoming. And there's a pitfall, really, that can ruin everything. And this barrier leads to the destruction of Moab. And sadly, this same barrier leads to the destruction of so many today. And I believe verse 6. Verse 6 is, is the, really the most tragic verse in these two chapters that we're looking at. Verse 6, I think, is actually worse than the horrors described in all of chapter 15 and the, and the horrors that are going to follow in the rest of chapter 16. And it's so tragic because hope is offered to Moab. They have been offered grace. They have been offered mercy. But they refuse it. They refuse it. Life is offered to them. But instead of choosing life, they choose death. This is horrible. It's tragic. So what is the reason for this horrible choice? Well, we see the answer in verse 6. We have heard of the pride of Moab. How proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Pride is what brought them down. Arrogance is what brought them down. Insolence, idle boasting. This is what kept them from receiving grace, from receiving mercy. My friends, this is what still keeps far too many from coming to Christ and receiving his mercy. Pride. And the result of this pride is seen in the remainder of of chapter 16. And verse 7, I think, makes this connection, a direct connection to verse 6 with these words, therefore. It says, therefore, because of this pride, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken. And the rest of the chapter is back to judgment. It describes the horrors waiting for Moab because of their prideful rejection of the living God. And it's not that these people were not religious. No, they certainly were religious. Look at verse 12. It says, when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high places, that's where they went to pray. He's weary himself praying on these high places. And when he comes into his pagan sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. See, they're religious, but they're religious on their own terms. They worship, but they worship the way they want to worship. They worship to the false gods on the high places, not to the true God, not to the way he has instructed them to worship through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, they worship in a way where they foolishly believe that they are in control. 
They worship false gods. They worship idols of their own making. Idols that they believe foolishly that they can control. <clears throat> Not realizing that in their supposed freedom, they're in reality in bondage to their own sin and in bondage to Satan. So why do they act so foolishly? It's all because of pride. They refuse to submit to God on his own terms. They foolishly believe they are in control. They foolishly believe they are the ones making the decisions. They foolishly believe that they can save themselves by their own efforts and their own cleverness. And sadly, this foolish pride is only leading them to unspeakable horrors. My friends, each one of us, each one of us is susceptible to this same soul-destroying pride. Each one of us is in danger of dismissing this warning, of thinking, uh, that doesn't apply to me, thinking that this message is for people a long time ago, and, and I would certainly not make that mistake. I would not be in that danger. And each one of us will, will get to a point where we, we must make a decision. Do I trust myself? Do I trust my own abilities? Do I trust my own cleverness? Do I trust my own goodness? Or do I trust in Christ? Do I trust his word? Do I trust his righteousness? Can we honestly say what we we all sang a few moments ago? Can we honestly say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling? And until we can say that, really mean it, we are in the same danger as the Moabites were in. Let me be extremely clear. These two chapters are not just about the Moabites. It's not simply a history about the destruction of an ancient people. These two chapters speak to every single one of us today. Let me spell it out. The horrors described in chapter 15 and the second part of chapter 16 is describing God's wrath. And this wrath is not just directed to the Moabites. It's not just against Babylon or Assyria. It's not just against Russia or the Nazis or child molesters or murderers or all the people that we think are evil. The wrath of God is against every single transgression of his law. And this is wrath is what every single sin deserves. This is what every single one of us deserves. Now, most of you won't believe this. Most of you say, come on, John, you're being being way too extreme. Yeah, of course nobody's perfect, but but God can't be that strict. God can't be that intolerant of, of honest mistakes. Right? We're all doing the best we can. No, we're not. We're not doing the best we can. There are no honest mistakes. All sin is rebellion against the holy God. And as we have seen in chapter 6 of Isaiah, God is holy, holy, holy. God is holy to the extreme. And he cannot, he cannot tolerate any sin. God is perfect in his holiness and justice. And we need to understand that we stand guilty before God. All of us are guilty before God. We need to understand what this means. We need to feel it. And that is why scripture is so graphic in the description of God's judgment. It is meant to get our attention. And my friends, unless we, unless we feel it, unless we can really understand it, in our sinful rebellion, we will simply dismiss it. We'll say that this doesn't apply to me. And most tragic of all, we will fail to truly understand the extent of this judgment will lead us away from the only hope of escape that we had. And this is what we see happen to the vast majority of Moab. They rejected it because of their pride. They went the other way. So we must first fear or we will never see any need for grace. John Newton famously wrote this. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed.'" 
And that one hope is offered freely. It is, often, it is offered without distinction. It is offered to male and female. It is often to black, to white, to all ethnicities, to all nations. It is needed by all and it is offered to all. And that hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That hope is the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. See, God is both just and a justifier. And God's holiness is not compromised. It cannot be compromised. Every sin must be punished. But he also offers mercy. He offers pardon to the sinners. And God's justice remains intact by punishing the sin, not in the sinner, as we deserve, but in Jesus Christ, in his own son. And the gospel is that good news. The gospel is the amazing good news that Jesus takes the sin of his people upon himself on the cross and suffers on the cross. He suffers the just punishment for all those sins. And the just punishment for just one of those sins is an eternity in the torments of hell. And he takes the punishment, <clears throat> the equivalent of the cumulative eternal torment of all those who will believe in him. But this is just the first part. This is the first part of the gospel. The second part of the gospel is that God then credits Jesus' perfect obedience to the one who has faith in Jesus. See, we who don't deserve, we are rewarded what only Christ deserves. That is eternal life. And this divine transaction is given to us. It becomes ours solely on the basis of faith, solely on the basis of trusting and believing. And when we believe this, and we believe this not, not only in theory, not only in general, but we need to believe this to be true to, for each one of us individually. And when we do this, when we receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone, as he is offered in the gospel, then our guilt is pardoned. We escape the horrors of hell, and we are given the eternal riches of heaven. And as with every sermon I preach, if any hear, any hear my voice, any on the live stream, any who, who listen to our recording 10 years from now, if any are not believers, your only application is one. Come to Christ. Your only application is to pray to the Lord. Call out to the Lord. Lord, change my heart. Regenerate my soul. Give me the, that supernatural faith so that I can believe in Christ and escape these horrors of hell and receive the riches of heaven. But for those of us who already belong to Christ, our application is to be that place of shelter. Be that place of shelter for those who do not yet belong to him. We are to point to Christ. We are to proclaim the good news of the gospel wherever we are, whatever situation we are in. We are to pray for the lost. And we are to remember now is the time of grace. Now is the time of mission. We are to be obedient to God's mission of drawing his elect to himself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust in you. Lord, I do pray if there are any here who hear my voice that do not know you, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will regenerate their hearts and give them that supernatural faith <clears throat> to believe in you. And then for the rest of us, Lord, help us to realize that our purpose here is to point to you. Our purpose is to bring you glory and to bring those who do not know you into faith. We pray this all in Jesus' name.